Um, okay, well, we're delighted to have Mike Bithell with, here, with us here tonight. Um, we're going to have a little chat, and then we'll throw it open to questions. We have one roving mic out there, so bear with us. If you do want to ask a question, just hang on for the mic to come down. I've had strict instructions from Rachel uh, to pass that on. Mike, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. um, I would like to start by uh, looking back a little bit um, about how you got started in game design. Mm. And I recently saw a story on Twitter about probably your... wasn't true, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you can set the story straight. But it was about your uh, history teacher, Mrs. Woods. Mm, yes. Yeah, I was um, I was really lucky. Yeah, that, that was I found uh, while I was uh, tidying, and my, my girlfriend's uh, moved away for a job, so we were kind of organising everything. And uh, I found an old floppy disk uh, with with manner, as in not manner as in magic, cool manner, manner as in like manor house uh, exclamation mark because marketing um, written on it. And it was it was that as a kid, I basically and it just reminded me something I completely forgotten, which was. Uh, as a, as a young teenager, um, there was a specific history teacher that let me submit, instead of essays, she let me make uh, little point-and-click adventure games. And as long as, I think in her words, as long as it says the six things it has to say, Mike, you can do whatever you want. But genuinely, like, that's, that was amazing, because what it allowed me to, I remember, um, I remember her, she's she an old woman, I, I had this memory of her perched in an IT room with her handbag on her lap watching me play a point an awful point and click adventure game and and you know it was you know saying it was super monkey island desk would be massively devastating it but like bad jokes back and forth and then one character would say and of course you know ultimately we all work for the feudal laws and I just see her going just write up to it take off the paper. And 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 I just I remember the reason I tweeted it was because it was it's something that's funny and it's it's cute, but also like that was a teacher who let the weird kid in her class just do the weird thing. She didn't know what it was. She didn't really probably care, but she didn't just shut it down. She didn't say just do the thing we do in this class. She actually allowed me to do that, and, and that's how I taught myself, or one of the steps I went through teaching myself how to code as a kid. And yeah, without that, you know, you never know, right? What what? All the steps that go towards a career. So yeah, it was a just a nice moment to just celebrate a, a teacher who wait. I mean, the IT department was on the third floor of the school, so like she was having to go up these stairs. We didn't have any elevators. Not like you fancy avatar people. Um, but we, we were like walking up these staircases. And I just remember her really like putting in a bit of effort. Like once a term, just go up to the IT department to watch me play a bad game. And I'm really grateful. It's lovely. That's uh, a touching story. Yes, she went to the effort of climbing the stairs. Um, so moving on a little bit, fast forwarding a little bit. You were <laughs> a little probably. Yeah, yeah there was a bit of a then jump. in year seven. Uh, <laughs> yes, tell us about year seven. No, no. Um, so moving on to your time at Blitz and uh, Boston Studios. Um, obviously working for established or a, a studio that someone else has set up. Did you take anything away from that when you moved into business for yourself? You mean like stealing? So like mouse tabs? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, yeah, I did, of course I did. Yeah, no, it was, um, uh, well, they spoke here recently, right? The Oliver Twins. Yes, uh, so they gave me my first job, which is very kind of them, especially given how bad I was. Um, I then got fired from my first job within a couple of months, uh, which, which was just horrible. You know that kind of student attitude? So apologies, I know a lot of you are students, so you probably know this is true. Uh, that student attitude of like, if only they let me into a game development 
the studio, I could fix this thing from the inside. I had that attitude of like, games suck. I actually, I was sat uh, earlier while we, when, I, when I arrived, and I'm so sorry if you're in the room, I'm not, I'm not going to identify you, but I, I saw a student walk past talking to their friend, and they were saying, man, people celebrate these games that all look exactly the same. Why don't they just be a bit more original? And I was like, that's me. <laughs> that was me as, as, as I graduated, and, and I got five for my first job because I think I said that to the wrong person. Um, <laughs> um, uh, mellowed slightly with age. Um, but no, it was amazing. Would be, yeah, I, had, I got taught everything. I got, I, I got taught about how games are made by teams. I lost a lot of ego, not too much ego because I needed a bit more for later in the career, but like enough. Um, and. Uh, and yeah, and then with Bossa, it was really cool because Bossa was a company that was founded by a friend of mine, um, Imre, who, who had moved to London with some friends and they hired us their first hire. So I got to be there from like, as close to being a founder as you can be without actually being a founder. And it was really cool just being a fly on the wall with no stakes in this. Watching a company kind of, that was one thing, we were making social games, and they went pretty well and we won a BAFTA for one of them. But then, um, you know, this design studio designer, Luke, who I brought in, uh, who was my one report. Like, I was the, I was the design manager of one guy. Um, <laughs> he really didn't need it. Um, and he came back from a game jam with um, Surgeon Simulator that he'd made, and he foolishly put the logo of the company on it, which I was still angry at him about, because he should have kept hold of it. Um, but, but he, and, and that was then the game that kind of defined Bossa, and, and now they do all these fantastic, weird, mean things. Um, and yeah, so, so I, yeah, I got to kind of experience an established company in Blitz and then Boston was very much the kind of startup finding itself. And that's really, it's a good education if you're going to one day try and build your own company. Okay. Um, and particularly at Blitz, I think you worked with some existing IP, some like movie type tie-ins also. Never again. Batman. Okay. <laughs> that was kind of my question. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say Batman? I didn't work on Batman. Pac-Man. Oh, Pac-Man. Yeah. The, the, the lesser man. The lesser <laughs> um, so uh, similar like drug dependencies. <laughs> um, and of course you just released uh, John Wick Hex. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you did do it again. I did do it again. Uh -huh. yeah. Based on a massive Keanu Reeves film franchise. So I wonder if you could tell us what it's like to design games within those existing properties compared to something entirely your own like Thomas or Subsurface. It's weird, I think it's shifting. Um, so it's kind of a weird question, it's kind of a quick sound question because Back in the day when you were working on, and I was only like a very low level person, so I wasn't privy to all of the conversations and debates, but I remember like working on, I worked on some Nickelodeon stuff, like Spongebob. Developers of my age, you'd be hard pressed to find one of us who didn't work on a Spongebob game at some point, because like you were in the industry at the moment I was, at the level I was, at the frankly quite low skill level I was, you worked on a Spongebob game, definitely. Um, there were just so many of them. Um, so I worked on some SpongeBob stuff, I worked on some Nickelodeon, as you say. I didn't work on Pac-Man, the team and the company did. But back then, working on a licensed game was, you were essentially a lunchbox manufacturer. You know, they needed, they, they knew video games were a thing, they'd seen them in the store, and they were like, we got SpongeBob, and we could put him in a box. That's cool. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> sorry, just threw me off. Um, and then we can just kind of sell that and, and make some money. And it was, it was not, we were not the most respected art form at that point in history. And that meant that you kind of, it was kind of a bit of an albatross around your neck. It was great because it brought a certain level of security and obviously money, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't a great creative opportunity. You got these Bibles, which were like 400 pages on where the holes in SpongeBob's sponginess are. 
which is good and important, and if I was the person who invented SpongeBob, I'd want to make damn sure they got it right. But it was kind of this weird, kind of very subservient process. Um, and, and weird stuff like getting into arguments because um, an actor in, in a show is, I'm keeping this very vague, um, is like very self-conscious about a certain aspect of their appearance. Um, so you can't like make them look like them because the thing that makes them look like them is something they hate and they'll never approve it. So those kind of problems, that was very much how it was back, back in the day. Um, or you couldn't get likeness rights and all, all of this nonsense. Nowadays, what's really interesting and what John Wick, I think, is, um, is an example, it's an early example of, hopefully, is that I think we are hitting a point where the suits have played games. It's really exciting when you go and talk to executives. It's not just, oh, my kid likes games, so we should probably make a game. It's, you've got to make something as good as GoldenEye, okay? Um, and, that's, and that's a really, that's a nice shift. That's a nice shift. That's a level of respect for the craft. It's a level of respect for us as creatives. Um, and that just kind of made sense. Uh, with John Wick as well, it's very particular because it is this IP that everyone thinks of as this, and they should, as this awesome, massive action franchise. But it is a weird indie film about a dog lover that got out of hand. Um, like, it's not, it was never meant to be that. I mean, it's great that it is, and I'm, I'm sure lots of people are very happy that it is, but like, it was this weird indie film that was shot around Hollywood and no one wanted because you can't do that in a mainstream movie, and you're not going to have America's sweetheart Keanu Reeves in that movie. What are you doing? Um, and then the one studio in town that said, yes, Lionsgate, which, which is known for these kind of, a lot of franchises which start with a weird idea and then blow, and then those things blow up. So, Twilight, um, Hunger Games, these are, these are weird ideas for let's take this genre, let's target it this audience, let's do this, 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 and this. They all kind of start like art house movies and then grow into franchises, and John Wick's an example of that. So there's kind of this institutional respect for weirdos um, with strange ideas, and, and that definitely kind of helped us open the doors and that led to that collaboration. And the other thing is because John Wick is so localized around the people who make it, there is no Bible. There's no book that says how John Wick holds his gun. If you want to know how John Wick holds his gun, you've got to go talk to the guy who invented the way he holds his gun. Uh, and the only way to talk to that guy is to talk to these three guys. And it's kind of this family business almost. So it actually kind of forced us into this collaboration, which is amazing. Kind of structurally, it led to like, you know, having Chad the direct, like literally sat with Chad while he was cutting the third movie I was like making the game and like showing him stuff, and he was like, John Wick can't see around corners, Mike. Okay, we'll do Fog of War, okay. Um, shit. Uh, you know, like you've got this kind of back and forth kind of playing out. And it's weird, and it sounds like marketing speak, but it's actually true. Um, and it's the kind of stuff we pretended we had access to when we, you know, years ago we licensed stuff. Um, but now Hollywood actually cares and respects us. Um, and what's been really cool with John Wick is. Um, the reception of it has been so good relative to most licensed games um, that it actually seems that that, I, that people are looking at John Wick as kind of an interesting prototype of, oh, if we let the game designers do the thing they want to do and we help them, they might make a good game. Um, and and that's, that's really exciting. And I've heard that back from people working on other things or working with different people that that's starting to percolate around the industry a little bit. And that's... That's something I'm really proud of with the game. Like I think there's, it does serve as an interesting prototype of doing a weird thing can actually work for an audience, which is, which is good for all of us, hopefully. And then 
But I think, honestly, we're riding a wave that was already kind of on its way into the metaphorical beach. I don't know, sir. Um, <laughs> as I'm sure you can tell. Um, but yeah. So it's a very long answer to your question. I apologize. I feel like I've been going for about 20 minutes. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, so, wondering specifically, what's it like to write for those properties? I mean, obviously you're a talented writer yourself, but you're having to work with other people's characters. How does that feel? Again, like, pretty... I went to karaoke with the writer John Wick. That was the main kind of instigation of the process. Um, I sang... What did I say? Grease and medley is usually my go-to. Um, but yeah, so I, it was, again, honestly, pretty kind of straightforward. Um, it was, I, again, was expecting it to be very hands-on. It was really like, we, we actually, we were often told by the executives at Lionsgate, because we were, we, were, we were playing it very safe. We were like, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get Ian McShane to do this. Okay, we won't have Ian McShane in there. Lance Reddick, probably not, you know, we're not gonna get this, we're not gonna get that. Um, and they just kept kind of pushing us to like, do the, do the weird thing. Um, so it got more and more risky as we went on. We kind of pitched in interesting ideas. And, and what was lovely was because of this collaboration, because we were in constant contact, you know, I still am on the phone to Lionsgate every week to kind of chat this stuff over. Um, because we just got into the habit of talking to each other, even though like the game's out. Um, it's nice. Um, but like it's like there was, there was that kind of, because there was that back and forth already. It wasn't so much ever a case of them coming back to us and saying, you can't do that. It was honestly because we were talking so much, we just never pitched them an idea we thought was not going to work. Um, and then you go through, as with any writing process, 10, 20 drafts. My, my scripts tend to get okay at draft 13, um, ironically, given the number. But like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's always an iterative process. I think with writing, I think especially when, when people are just starting out writing, they, they assume if the script's bad at the first draft, then they suck. And my first drafts are usually Joe looks at the other character and is unhappy. Grr, he says. And like, and I think that's just like a placeholder. It's like making a placeholder. It's like an interesting game design, right? You put stuff in just to fill the space, and then you go back and go, oh, well, this is. And also, you'll you'll work out like a theme later. I remember when I was first signing out, I was like, I'm gonna sit down and spend two weeks working out what this game's really about. But usually, what it is, I'll be like six six rewrites into John Wick. I was like, oh, it's 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 about it's about. A a son who thinks he's entitled to something. Okay, well, okay, now that can, then you kind of work out the theme. It, it, it grows out. It's exactly like game development. It's that kind of, we'll iterate on a mechanic and see what happens. And then what was lovely is, yeah, Lionsgate were fantastic about just giving me room to do that. Um, and then, yeah, we, we, we wrote, and I was writing drafts right up until we were in the recording studio. Um, I wonder, um, obviously, Lionsgate, it sounds like they were excellent. Just great, right, just great. Right. Yes, great. Oh. <laughs> Is they're listening. Um, they always are. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is sometimes they know about things that happen to me. I'm not the things I tweet about either. Oh, it's creepy. Okay, that's kind of terrifying. Um, but um, how, did, how did you come to land that franchise? I mean, what was the process? Um, so it was, honestly, it was, um, it was a, a combination, <laughs> combination of just, you know, knowing the right people and, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was basically that they wanted... Uh, so Lionsgate, it's a very long story, but basically Lionsgate were talking to Good Shepherd, the publisher, about like making movies of games and how that would work. Because there's a lot of, because yeah, obviously Hollywood's looking for any name that you already know, so they can sell you a movie based on it. Uh, and a lot of people play games now, so they're looking at all of that stuff. Um, so they were having that conversation, and I think Good Shepherd, because um, Good Shepherd's kind of cheeky in a way I like, were like, we can talk about that, but like, why is there not a John Wick game? 
That seems weird. Um, and Ryan said, we're like, okay, we'll pitch us something, and if it's interesting, we, we're up for it. Um, and I think Good Shepherd went out and like went to a bunch of like double-A game studios and said, what would you do with John Wick? And then they got a lot of pitches from Max Payne, um, which is exactly what the internet thinks you should have made. Um, <laughs> uh, I watched that Ryan Johnson interview, and I was like, oh. Um, the, but the, uh, the, the, the Max Payne just came in, and everyone was just kind of like, this isn't what John Wick is. John, you're getting the wrong Keanu Reeves movie. It's not about bullet time. That's not what John Wick is. John Wick's this uh, strategic, smart play, and they just weren't feeling any of these pitches. Um, so they reached out to uh, an independent producer, a guy called Ben Andak, um, who's, who was a producer on No Man's Sky and Hellblade, and just very good at finding really interesting projects and making them awesome. Uh, he also produced volume, which I would not include on that first list, necessarily. Um, and they said to him, like, can you do something interesting with this? Uh, and then he invited me to a movie night, and, and uh, to watch an action movie, which we came out of, and like, oh, that's, yeah, it was okay. And being the skillful manipulator that Ben is, he was like, well, it's, it's no John Wick, is it? Mike? I was like, no, that film's so good. <laughs> that, that no one's ever gonna go near that. He's like, yeah, what would you do? If, if you could make a game based on John Wick, and I was like, well, obviously Max Payne, but not Max Payne, because that would suck, because it would, that's the wrong Keanu Reeves movie, I made the same joke, you laugh. Um, and, <laughs> if only he did properly. Or maybe he did just kind of get, keep it going, place my ego a little bit. That's very clever, good way um, and, and, and I said, well, probably the, the, the hipster indie version of this would be do some kind of tactics or strategy thing and you kind of make a game that's about some choreography, because that's not really been done so much at that kind of micro level, um, and that feels like something that the John Wick guys would be into, because obviously the people who make John Wick are really big on the sun side, um, and it would be a really interesting project. He's like, you should prototype that. I was like, yeah, I should prototype that. a really good idea, I should prototype that. He's like, no, I'm, Mike, um, I'm actually kind of producer of John Wick now uh, for games, and I need to find someone. Uh, and that sounds decent because you make it. So we, we basically, and I, we, so, so I went off with my team uh, and we made um, a really bad prototype of that idea. Um, honestly, what we did was we made a prototype for it because we wanted to make a strategy game for a while. There's a few people on the team, this guy called Nick Trigali, who I, who I designed with and who codes our games um, now. And he, 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 me and him have been talking about doing a strategy game for a while. So it's kind of an excuse to just make a prototype of that idea. And then we stuck Keanu Reeves photo on it at the last minute, tended to them. Um, but it was kind of influenced by the ideas, but it wasn't great at being John Wick. Um, and, and, and we just honestly used it as an excuse to get some prototyping time out of my business partner. Um, and then, it, then I was flying to LA to pitch it to uh, Lionsgate, and it was all kind of, at some point they're gonna stop me. Um, and then they were like, this is really cool, but like, you know, it's not very John Wick in this way, this way, and this way. And it's like, we agree, we, we tweet stuff, we change it, we made it the most John Wick strategy game ever. Um, and then we're announcing it. I'm like, this has got to stop. We're gonna, we, we've got to stop this and reskin it to what it's actually going to be when we release it. And then it just kind of it went from there. And then we were at E3 and we were doing that. And, it just, and now it's out. Uh, and it's, it feels like a, a, a it feels like, you know, the producers where they like go, and, you know, they, 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 they don't think it's ever going to actually happen. You know, I, I kind of was in that mode for the whole production, which I think led us to making really cool, brave choices because. I did keep waiting for someone to stop me, and no one did. Uh, which is kind of cool. 
Um, a man of power. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Ian McShane there, and obviously you work with Ian McShane. I do at every opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Um, he and Lance Tell Reddick. Tell me to call him Ian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were working with them, they were already cast clearly because they were in the movies. So that's a different process from your usual casting process, I mm. guess. But you're quite particular, I think, about your voice actors. <laughs> I mean, you know, Danny Wallace, Sue Perkins. What's your usual process for casting and how did it differ when you weren't doing the original casting? Um, so the usual process is I have, uh, I find it really hard to write a script without having an actor in mind. So like I'm, I'm writing one of our new things at the moment and I've cast it. I might not get the person I want to play the part, but like in my head it's that voice. Because that's the only way I can write. I can't, I can't write anything original. I always have to have the voice of that actor in my head. And if I recast, I don't have to rewrite it all around that voice. Um, which actors really like because when when they when they're like, oh, that's that's the thing I can say. That's cool. Because often that's not what the scripts are like when we get them. Um, so so yeah. So so generally, I'll, I'll cast very early in my head. Then you know you reach out to people and try and get them, and, and the first four people say no, and then. You're like, okay, well, I actually know the best person we didn't even realize until now is that person. Uh, and then you get that person. And then the internet's like, wow, you got that person? And they don't know about the four people you've asked beforehand that said, no, you made the video game. Um, uh, and, but that's really cool. And that leads often to really kind of, it, it, it kind of, you get through the obvious ideas and then you get someone who's perfect for it. So like um, uh, in volume, um, uh, we, we talked to obviously lots of actors, but but Andy Serkis ended up playing. I, I was working so hard not to accidentally say the name of the guy who dropped out a week before we recorded it. Um, <laughs> but no, Andy Serkis, who came in and did this amazing performance, and at the time hadn't done um, many bad guys. I watched uh, watched Star Wars, which came out about nine months after Volume came out. I was like, oh, you're Sue Snow. Oh, cool. Okay, I like I like that role as well. That's cool. Um, but like, yeah, he, so, so you find these actors who, have, who do something really interesting and um, and similar thing happened with this. So yeah, obviously uh, the actors who are in the movies, they're in the movies. You, if we couldn't get them to record, we wouldn't recast them. That'd be incredibly, uh, I, I, as a player, I hate sound alikes. I hate that. I'd rather not have the voice than have um, someone doing a really bad impression. Um, so we, we, yeah, we were talking to different people about the bad guys. I actually was on stage with, so the guy who played our villain was an original villain, this guy called um, Troy Baker, who I'm sure everyone in the room um, is, is, well, you've heard him in every other game, um, when no look North's unavailable. Um, I can say that joke because he makes that joke every time I see it. Um, but we were on stage at a Comic-Con, and before we went on, he's like, can I tell them the story of the DM you sent me? Uh, and I was like, what the other? He showed me on his phone. I was like, "Yeah, we can do it." So it, this is all out there. But I literally sent him a DM, which was like, "Hi, Troy. I know you've been looking for an opportunity to work together for a while. Four guys have turned me down for the role of Hex and John Wick. Um, right now, on paper, you wouldn't work. But if you say yes, I'll rewrite the whole thing for you. <laughs> Basically, but like with four paragraphs and lots and lots of apologies. And then his reply was like. I love you, Brad, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and, 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 but, he, but, but so I, once, I got, once I got Troy and um, just rewrote the entire role for him um, around his, his strengths and his vocal kind of cadence, uh, and then we recorded with him. But yeah, he's the only original voice actor, I believe. I think, yeah, I think everyone else in it is someone who was playing that role in the movie. 
um, which is cool as well. And, and what's really fun with, with the actors who know the roles is that they correct you on stuff. Um, Ian was, I call it Ian. Um, <laughs> Ian was, uh, was really like specific. He was annoyed, not annoyed, but he had notes because um, in the stage directions for a scene, he's drinking a whiskey. Uh, and Winston does not drink whiskey. He drinks uh, martinis. And he had a note on that, and he was like, Mike, you can't, it's, it's, and it's like, well, it's voice, and that, no one talks about it, so it was, it was basically a stage direction, it was like a placeholder that I'd done the night before, and I felt really stupid, um, but, but it's that kind of, but, but then also just like the cadence, the way, and we, I mean, we were, me and, me and Smuchen were, were fiddling with his lines in the room, and kind of tweaking things, and re-recording things, and, and kind of, playing with the nuance of that character, because he's played that character three times before, so it's a really nice, that's also cool, I've never done that before, worked with an actor who's reprising a role, uh, that was really interesting, um, and, and just very generous of them to show up and do that, and, and, and arguing with Lance Reddick about the pronunciation of words in the accent he does in the movies and stuff like that, it's like, and about two lines into arguing with him, you're like, no, he knows, he knows, I'm being an idiot, I apologise. Um, but yeah, it's a really cool process, it's really fun. I, I, I'm talking about disagreements, but then like these really cool, creative disagreements where you kind of find the cool stuff. Um, and, and yeah, I, I still remember him coming up to me in the recording, he's like, I'm so glad you wrote this, the last draft was not as good as this. It's like, yeah, it's like this new draft. Um, no, it's really great, it's really amazing just to work with those guys. Um, moving sideways a little bit, obviously a lot of people in the room are looking to make careers in the industry, and I noticed your, your job title is uh, game director, which isn't like the right job titles. <laughs> um, obviously, that's not necessarily an entry level position, but what does it what does that entail, and how did you get to that point? Um, well, what you need to do is you need to in twenty twelve be the first person who realizes you can release a game with the rectangles a lot and get away with it. Um, Hire Danny Wallace. No, um, so it's yeah, director is a tough one because I think director, and it's also kind of a nonsense title as well, like, and it means different things. Design is really nicely codifying around an actual job now. Um, when I go into the industry, design was similarly vague, whereas I feel like we're really maturing as a medium that design now makes sense. We are still struggling with what a director is. Um, so I think everyone goes by their own definition. For me, a director is someone who, it's more like a curator. You're, you're basically putting on the greatest art exhibit ever, hopefully. Um, you know, critics may disagree with you. You're aiming for the best art exhibition in history, uh, and you've got all these amazing artists, and you're trying to kind of make the thing that that person's doing fit with that person's work, and kind of, you're trying to maintain an idea and a vision that kind of carries through stuff. You're not instructing everyone exactly what to do, or indeed, what to do on a lot of levels, you're just kind of trying to shepherd everyone in the right kind of same direction. So, so something that Gabby's doing really benefits what Jeff's doing, benefits what Nick's doing, and that kind of all fits together and kind of uh, clicks into place. So it's more like you're, you're managing that process. Um, and then I also do a lot more of the kind of project management side currently, which we're trying to hire a project manager because it's tiring and, and real work. Um, so it's, it's, for me, it's that kind of creation. I know other directors who are much more hands-on, complete control of every aspect. Uh, that's not me. It's not my personality. I don't. I like to. I like to work with people who who can see that how much impact they've had in that final thing. I can look at John McHex and I can 
absolutely see every argument I lost, and it's awesome, because <laughs> they're all better than me at everything. Um, in terms of how you get that job, um, it's, it's, it's tough, it's, it's lucky. I, I have, there's one guy, there's a guy called um, Mike Chapman, who's a really great fellow who works at um, Rare, um, and me and him started in the same job on the same day, and I often think of him as like Mirror University me if I hadn't gone indie. And he's now, he's, I think he is design director on, um, on, uh, on Sub Rare. And so he's kind of, that's the, the other path that, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could have gone down. Um, so I, I think there, that career path does exist in, in development, um, kind of in the AAA level, obviously, but I think it's much more competitive. If you start your own studio, you can be a director tomorrow. Um, but they might not care, they might not be very good because you've not worked your way through kind of the process. Um, so for me, it's a, it's, a, it's a title I held back from using for a long time, but I think now it feels appropriate. I feel like that, I am doing, that is the job I'm doing. Um, but it's weird because when you anoint yourself with a title, it feels weird. It's like, well, Mike gave me the, the job. Um, it's kind of a weird thing to kind of to work out. So I'm giving a bad answer, basically. I'm going to kind of stop before I dig any deeper. <laughs> <laughs> I was enjoying it, but um, <laughs> that's all we aim for. Uh, <laughs> um, so you, <coughs> jumping ahead again, so you previously dabbled with VR with Earthship, I think it was, with the Daydream. Yeah. Um, Both players love that. It's <laughs> <laughs> really good. I heard from them. <laughs> <laughs> um, has VR developed the way you expected it to do or wanted it to do? I, I was a skeptic, I was a real skeptic. I, we did the Daydream thing, we did that with Google, and you know, Google Daydream didn't kind of take off. <clears throat> I think we were one of the more successful games on the, on the platform, but it was kind of, you know, obviously kind of prototypical, kind of weird experimental stuff. Um, it's, it's an interesting process. The process of making the game, I think, was better than probably what the game actually ended up being. Um, but, the, uh, but the VR side, honestly, after that, I was just like, I don't think this is quite ready. And, and it was only recently when I played the, um, the Quest that I'm like, oh, it's VR like we were told it would be. Um, where the Quest finally feels like something I could guilt-free buy as a gift for someone who's not an ultra nerd. Like, you, you switch it on, you charge it up, you put it on, and it's got an app you install on your phone. It just makes sense, and it just kind of works. And the quality is there, and, and that kind of thing. So the quest for me was the moment where I got excited in VR again. I was kind of, I, I'd lapsed, um, but I'm, I'm back in church now. Um, I, I like the Oculus Quest a lot. I'm playing everything on there. Um, so that's really neat. Um, so I, I think I think VR had to cross a line where it became a consumer product. I think we're just there finally, um, where it's not like you know a hassle. Um, whether it's whether it's got long term legs, I don't know. I think the thing that the argue the conversation that bores the hell out of me is the kind of is VR going to kill um, console games, which just seems so silly in a world where we still listen to radio. Um, like, but, but like it's this kind of this this idea that every new technology is going to kill the old technology, and it seems very reductive and annoying and boring. So I think VR is interesting. I think it's I think the people who are doing really interesting work in that space, I find that very exciting, and I I, I keep an eye on that side of, of the games industry. Um, it's, it's fun watching an industry figure out the big problems. I feel like so many of those problems, I remember when we were doing these, when I was doing this kind of event and talking in front of people, and it was we were like, the great thing about VR is we don't know the answers to any questions. And then, and now I think actually we do know a lot of answers to a lot of questions, that's because of a lot of very hardworking people in the field. So it's, it's, it's kind of, I'm, I'm excited as a consumer of that stuff, definitely. Um, obviously, you're a gifted storyteller, you've been interested in writing stories. Do you think VR has any particular unique 
you know, opportunities for telling stories? I think so. I think there's a lot of, I'm really interested in the performance aspect of it, the, the kind of, uh, some kind of like the, the theatricality. I think theatre um, and, and escape rooms, that kind of immersive theatre kind of thing has suddenly blown. I mean, it was, it's been blowing up for about 15 years, but like in terms of the mainstream, that stuff's really kind of hitting. I do look at VR as a really interesting potential crossover there, kind of what's it like to be this close to a great actor and how, and how can that be done? Um, that's, that, that stuff excites me from a storytelling point of view. I'm, I'm not, again, like I'm, I'm incredibly cynical about when I, I when people quantify like um, tech specs to like emotion. So when you say more polygons, like, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I like being the, the, the winning argument in that conversation on Twitter because I, I see it when people do that. Um, but like Thomas and Malone, like, prove, I think prove that you don't need great facial animation to remember the character. I think VR, I've seen the same kind of thing coming around, but VR is going to be more empathetic than the film. And I think that's nonsense. Like, at least in the short to mid term. Like, we're not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not this kind of tech spec improvement thing, I think. But I think there's a lot of really interesting untapped potential. I think we're still scraping the surface of that. I think we've made fun, weird experiences in VR. The best experiences I've had in VR have been funny or um, social. I'm interested in, in a really great story. I I um I rewatched weird reference. I rewatched um Wolf Hall recently with um with Mark Rylance and like they could just point to camera at Mark Rylance's face for ten minutes and I'll just be sat there riveted. Um and I just that's I feel like I want to basically wanna hang out with Mark Rylance. That's what I'm saying. Basically, I think VR could do that and could kind of capture that kind of real physical presence in acting. Yeah. Is, is, is there anything else on the horizon or the way the industry's heading that's exciting you? What do you think's coming up that's interesting? Um, it's a weird time. The, the whole, I think the biggest and most interesting trend right now, and I say interesting because I'm not sure, and there's a lot of nuance to whether it's a good or a bad thing, is this kind of Netflix of games conversation. Um, because I think that's, it's really interesting because there's certain developers who are getting amazing opportunities because of it, um, and, and, and certainly the conversations you have if you've got a reputation with those kind of platform holders are very exciting and very cool, and you know just go and do whatever you want. Um, but it does worry me about new talent coming up. You know, if you look at the history of um, Netflix, um, initially they really did only spend money on stuff that pre-existed. You know, let's put friends on it. That's great if you're already. The Friends. Um, that's how TV works. It's all in the Friends in pocket. Um, I'm sure of it. Um, but then, as time went on, it's really interesting being kind of film industry adjacent for a couple of years, talking to a lot of directors, who filmmakers who are who are making their first or second movie, and it's being funded by Netflix. We need to race ahead because it took Netflix like a decade, nearly, to get to the point where they were putting the money into new talent rather than um, just buying up names you already heard of. The games, the game services right now, it feels like they're emphasizing publishers and that person whose game you've already played. And that's great for people like me who made that game you already played because you've got it in Humble Bundle by accident three times. Um, that's great for us, but that doesn't serve the next generation coming up. And if you're not serving the next generation coming up, then you're part of several other adjacent and intersecting issues in the games industry. Um, so, so I, I would like us to move to that stage. I, I think I saw that. Like, I, I was really interested in watching the Xbox um, stuff yesterday. I think it was with the or the day before. Days of learning together. I'm really sick. 
Um, the, the, uh, the, the Game Pass stuff, there was some really interesting, exciting work from new creators there. So I think, I think that's happening, and that's, that's something I'm definitely having that conversation behind closed doors with a lot of these platforms, and like, go, go to new people as well, and, and, and do that, and, and clearly they're listening to me, and I'm saying games in the street. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the subtext I think of that sentence I just said. Um, just in case you didn't pick up on it. But I, I, think, I think a lot of people are having that conversation. It's kind of interesting being the second generation behind something like Netflix where you can learn lessons of what went right, what didn't go so right, kind of figure that out. Uh, do you think something more curated then, like the Apple Arcades or to some degree Game Pass? Is that the way we're going to go? I, th I think it's, I think so. The problem, so the problem I have with curation, um, it's a because curation is such an attractive thing. But if you're if you're someone who would get curated in, um, if you're not, then it's it's not so good. And I again the nuance of those debates. I mean, we've been having them since um, Steam like was for, like I had the only reason Thomas was alone. Any of you played it? If you did, thank you if you did. Um, the only reason any of you could have played it is because I like went to a London uh, Steam event. I gave crushed the Steam event um, and just like went like and talked to someone from Valve. Uh, back when that was the only way you could get on Steam was just to know someone from Valve. I didn't know anyone from Valve, so I just found out where they were going to be. Which is not good advice. Please don't do that. It's creepy. Um, but, you know, they, 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 they let me on. But even that's the thing. It's like that was the ultimate curation. Thomas was alone was on the front page of Steam for all users uh, for two weeks. Um, that will sort them out. That will start a career. Um, and now games are up and gone. And, 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 and so it's a... It's a it's such a weird kind of double-edged thing. I think we need 50,000 different platforms. That's my, my answer. I don't know, I honestly don't know, and I do worry that we're in for a, a kind of a, a smaller studio kind of crash thing, but I've been saying that for a long time, so I'm probably wrong. Um, it's the apocalypse. I think it's been the only, I think we're almost at the decade mark on the apocalypse. Because the apocalypse was used to describe, I, I don't know if this is true, I think this is true, I'm the reason for the term in the apocalypse, I think, because volume came out and there was a very lazy person on the internet compared on Steam Spy the sales of volume, the game had been out for a week, uh, with the sales of Thomas Was Alone, the game had been bundled in 70 humble bundles at that point, and said that volume wasn't selling as well as Thomas Was Alone was, because he was comparing a week to, I think at that point, three and a half years, and then wrote an article called The Apocalypse, Why Mike Biddle's a Failure. Um, I might I might be exaggerating the title, but but so I, so I think we've been in the indie apocalypse for a very long time. So I think that's also nonsense. But I think we do as an industry, we either need to become okay with the idea that it's okay for people to own guitars and also for rock bands to exist, and then there to be lots of layers in between, not all of them professional, or we need to fundamentally shift some things around. Um, socialism might work. Um, I just say not say Hashtag socialism. Oh my but yeah, I, I think it's weird. It's weird. I'm just rambling. I apologize, I'll stop. I love when you ramble about socialism, why not? Um, I, I, it's a dangerous point in the country's history for me to be talking about. I've been watching the news. Fascinating. Okay, well. At this point, I think I'd quite like to throw it out to the audience. <laughs> Please. <so. laughs> Don't ask me about politics. I'm very, very ill. 
Um, we do have that one um, microphone, so who here has a... Can someone be the first? Because it's yeah. always the first question, always takes like 10 minutes, and then, then, then 20 hands go up next time. We've got a few again. Yeah, just yes. here. Oh, oh. What are you doing on social media? <laughs> I feel like so. it is a trap. It is a trap. Thank you for warning me. Cheers, Akbar. Yeah, it's some. Um, yeah. Uh, wait, another one down. Just here. Obviously, yeah. Oh. Obviously, uh, your game's a lot of coverage on YouTube. Uh, how do you get your game out there? There are two people like get noticed. Um, do you know, it, Thomas was alone with all our coverage on YouTube because it was kind of um, at a time when there weren't many games. And, and, and crucially, Thomas was alone, didn't get much coverage on YouTube until um, John Vane, um, Total Biscuit, uh, did a video of it. And then, and then everyone copied back then, everyone copied whatever Total Biscuit did, everyone else did. Um, and that was kind of the, the way that YouTube was working at that point. The honest answer is, I don't know in the modern day how you do that, because I don't think my games do actually travel as much on, like Twitch and YouTube as other people's. Um, my stuff um, tends to do very well with kind of traditional press and social media, but I, I don't know if I'm the best person to give an answer on that. What I will say is, Geese seem to be very popular. Um, so I, I spoke to a student who was making like untitled something else game, and I was like, stop, stop. Um, but it's, I think there's a, I think um, I think the untitled goose game is an interesting example of um, making games that are really entertaining to watch. Seems to be the really big thing. Um, that's something that's helped with John Wick actually is that the people want to show off what they've done and the cool fight scene they've made. Um, so I think I think making stuff that um, is a fun, maybe even potentially more fun to watch than it is to play. And if that's not the case, and be honest with yourself about that, because obviously you love your game, you're making it. Um, but like, if that's not the case, then maybe that's not the avenue uh, to go down. If you're someone who's not making a game that's more fun to watch than it is to play, then figure out if, like, can we make it a game that's more fun to write about than it is? Like, basically, just manually work out the thing that people are going to want to do to share their opinions on your game and play into that and be interesting uh, enough that people want to have an opinion. You know, we all um, we all want to have an opinion on certain parts of pop culture and talk on social media at nauseam about them. That's not an accident. You know, there is, I with the Marvel Universe, I love Marvel movies, like, too much for an adult. Um, but, like, the, their whole structure of those movies is designed to keep you engaged and interested on social media with Marvel movies Watching them is kind of an afterthought a lot of the time, right? Like everyone's kind of engaged with them all throughout the time uh, in between. So I think, yeah, I think playing up to being a shareable thing in that sense. I think often as game developers, we like to believe that if it's good enough, um, it'll just be popular. Uh, and I don't think that's ever been true. I think it's even less true now than it has ever been. Another question? We've got some at the front here. Some at the front. Trying to work your way down. Oh, yeah. Sorry, no. Oh. When you started out, sorry, mate. That's okay. Okay, how did you manage to stay stay income while you were developing your first game? <laughs> um, this is where I lose all credibility. Um, I didn't. Um, I didn't make my first. No, sorry. I did the opposite. I I didn't quit my day job until I had money. Um, and this is this is one of those bits of advice that I was giving for a long time, and I realised the flaw in it, which I'll get to in a second. My whole thing was I'm very cautious with money because I, I didn't come from massive amounts of money. So I, I was always very careful about that. 
Um, so with Thomas was alone, I made it as a hobby game while having a big job. Working as a game designer for our boss studios. Um, and then when that game came out, I made myself the deal that if it made a certain amount of money, um, I would uh, buy my girlfriend a nice meal. Uh, if it made a bit more money, um, I would go to Disneyland. Um, and if it made my yearly salary, I would quit my day job and try being an indie. Like, I needed a year's salary in the bank before I was going to even consider that. Uh, and then it bombed, I launched Thomas was alone. Uh, and then about six months later, uh, thanks to Total Biscuits video and the game being on Steam, it kind of, it kind of blew up. And it made the kind of money where I'd quit. But I didn't quit my day job until I had a year, I think two years salary in the bank before I decided to do that. Um, so my advice to people is often, because of how difficult it is to get ahead in India and how many people are doing it, don't risk yourself on that. Have a job. Make it your hobby, make it something you come home to and fiddle with. And Thomas was alone for three and a half years, and you all know what it looks like. <laughs> it was not like, I did like an hour every couple of nights for three and a half years on it. Um, and that's okay, and that's fine. People have been whittling things in sheds for millennia. I don't know if that's true, it's probably not true. Think about, the Think about the time involved. I don't know if the Romans probably had little. The Romans had little. The Romans had little. It's fine, it's a, it's a valid phrase. Um, you can tell why I go through so many drafts on scripts. Um, uh, um, so it's okay, it's okay to have it as a hobby, I think. And then if something, you release stuff, and you take it seriously, you finish it, and you get it out there, and if it works, great. You've got some cash now, you can go and as I did, try and build on that success and, and, and hire people and do the whole thing. Um, and that was the advice I was giving for a long time. The problem, of course, is if everyone listens to that advice and we don't get any games and they're kind of boring and it's going to be the person who ignores me uh, and does it and becomes more successful than I could ever imagine, who's going to have the interview with Polygon where they say, Mike Bethel told me not to do this. And then I didn't listen to the man because uh, I, I was an artist and I did it and now I'm a multi-millionaire screwing my bill. And I and, and it's and, and that's true because a lot of the successes we have heard, while they are outliers, they are people who have ignored all of the good advice that's out there generally. They've done things in a completely wrong way. So I kind of don't try and kind of tell people how to do this stuff anymore. Um, I just kind of try and give an honest account of my story and how things went for us. Um, and that's as much as I feel comfortable giving anymore because I don't want to. I don't want to be stupid. In retrospect, um, yeah. We have a couple down here, just over here. <coughs> this is why I've got a handheld mic, by the way, because I keep coughing because of this cold. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that you might mention these circular games, but I was just wondering if you'd be able to talk about them for a bit, because uh, Quarantine Circular in particular, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Usually people prefer subsurface circulars, that's interesting. Yeah, I have a friend that likes subsurface, but I told her I like Quarantine, she told me I'm crazy, so... I, I mean, I, I personally I agree with your friend, I think Quarantine's not quite as strong. Um, <laughs> I just have shit taste. No, I, honestly, are you, are you attracted to Gabriel the alien? Because that seems to be a thing. It comes up a lot. Pass. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's a yes. That's a yes. So there, there's a, he has a, or, well, you choose the gender, so he, they, or she has a, has a substantial following on the internet at this point, which is interesting. Obviously a great compliment uh, to me and the character artist. Um, but yeah, so, so, so certain games, for those who don't know, are 
um, uh, text adventure games with nice graphics, basically. That was the kind of the original idea. The reason for the subsurface circular games, um, specifically, uh, sorry, subsurface circular and quarantine circular, was we had, a, we had a scheduling problem. So we had this prototype, uh, which was really good, and I'm going to make it at some point, and I promise when I do make it, I will do an interview or something where I say it was this game. We had a pro site that was really good and people wanted it, and it was for a bigger game. I'm really proud of it. And we signed with a publisher, uh, and we were excited to make it, and then um, they had a complete executive level overhaul. And what happens in big companies when new people come in is they kill everything that was already happening. They're kind of like lions. Um, everything was happening before they got there because they can't, you know, take credit for that. They can't. That can't be their way to kill off every project. So we, we were, we got our game cancelled. Fortunately, it was very early in the process. But I had decided to hire some artists, and we started to build up a, a team around that. Um, and so we found ourselves uh, without a publisher. We basically had the option of going back and trying to pitch this game again around town. Um, this was, I think, this was in. I'd have to check the dates, but I think it was just. It was kind of just after GDC and DICE had happened, which are the two events where we have been most successful pitching. So we were kind of awkwardly worrying, like, how would we go and pitch this? We can't go and meet with all these people. Um, this this prototype tried to get another uh, publisher. And I had the idea. I went to my business partner, Alexander Salinsky, who's fantastic, and he's kind of the, the guy who keeps the lights on and, and works out the business and the money side of everything. I said, what's the biggest amount of money I can waste um, for four months, and he told me a number, um, which was very low, because um, we were trying, we, we hired all these people, uh, and, but we, because we were in production, we hired a lot of artists, so, so we sat down and we worked out, okay, I was like, okay, for that money, I can pay these artists to stick around, um, and we need to come up with a game that can be coded very easily, and relies heavily on art, and I guess writing, because that's all I can do well, um, in terms of producing assets for a game. Um, and I had a friend called, uh, or have a friend, we're still friends, we're very close. Uh, not supposed to be any of but we're, we're good. Um, <laughs> called um, uh, Mu Yu, who's a great coder, who uh, I happen coincidentally to live um, in the same building as. So I was like, I said to him, like, I can't afford to hire you, but can you do like two days a week on this? So he coded Subsurface Circular basically as his hobby project. Um, and then for four months we made art, I wrote, and we released this, this text adventure game. It took us four months. It was the fastest game we ever made. It was by a long way the cheapest game we've ever made. Um, and um, it's also one of our most popular and best critically you know, respected games. Um, so that was really exciting. So we made that, and everyone was high-fiving. Um, and that was around the time where I went to see a movie with Ben, and he talked to me to John Wick. Um, and then it looked like we were going to do John Wick, and then turned to me and said, I mean, it will take six months of negotiation on the contracts for John Wick. It's quite a big franchise. And we had a template at that point, so I, I was about to sweat. S screw it, I guess. Um, that's about as far as I want to go with the microphone point in my mouth. Um, let's just, let's do some, let's do another one of those. That worked. So we did Quarantine Circular, basically, to fill the gap while we were waiting for the contracts on John Wick. And that one came out and did well again. It was, it was, was popular, not quite as popular as Subsurface, but it did its thing. Um, and then, yeah, we did some Switch ports of them because I like the Switch and we hadn't put anything on it, so I was like, that's a good fit, I think. Because I, I didn't think anyone would want to sit in front of their TV and play a text adventure game, but I figured on like 
on the train or a bus, it might be quite fun to play on your Switch. Um, and that was it. And then uh, those were those games. And, and it's a really nice little template for games. I think we'll probably do them in the future when we find ourselves in similar situations where we need to be doing something. But it was a really nice, um, you talked earlier about constraints. It was a really nice constraint that we had on ourselves as a team that we had to do something. Otherwise, because we were just burning money while these people sat at their desks. And, and it led to this, I think, one of the best things we ever made, uh, which was really nice. I like it. And some of the jokes, you know, actually funny. Actually, I like it. Makes me happy. That's, that's circular. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Um, outside of technical skills, what useful stuff did you pick up from your previous jobs uh, that helped you make it <coughs> games? Um, I think we always, as an industry, underplay, and actually I don't like this about um, about the the tools uh, talk. Um, we underplay how important this the social and um, communication skill side of this industry is. So I think probably the best thing I learned was learning how to work on teams, working how to collaborate. Um, I know when I was a student, I bet this still exists. I'm apologies, I don't know if Um I, You still probably have the thing where you're put in a group and like there's a person in the group who sucks. And really annoyed you all, right? And I remember the student really annoyed by that, being like, no one in the industry is ever going to be difficult. It's, they're all pros. Uh, why, why do I have to do this pretend thing? Um, and it actually was like, and, and I was terrible, I flunked that in university, but, the, but then in, in, in industry, yeah, learning how to work with teams, I think that's the biggest thing, those interpersonal skills. If, and it's, it kind of plays into the directing thing. If, if you do want to be a director one day, my job is 99% chatting to people. Like, chatting in like a wise and smart and creative way, obviously, but chatting, like just talking on the phone. I, there are days where I wake up, have my breakfast, get on a call at nine, and, and especially when I'm working on John Wick, because all Californians wake up later, I would just then be talking on calls around lunch break and then back on calls till like eight, eight o'clock in the evening. That's, that's kind of all it is. You're not, there's no camera for you to stand behind kind of going, hmm. It's more kind of just all these conversations and discussions. So I think, yeah, that's the skill that I, I rely on most for my time in, in other people's studios. Because I was terrible at it when I started. Do you have a question? Ideally on this side of the room there. Just... <coughs> uh, Mr. Biffle, um Thank you. That's the level of formality I expect. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but thank you. Have you um, ever struggled with creative burnout? And if so, how do you work around this? Um, so it's so another one I'm very careful in my answer to because I know this is a real, like, like motivation in general is often an issue. I, I kind of have the opposite problem. I'm obsessed with working. I'm, I'm, I hate the word work, workaholic because it conflates serious, you know, dependencies to, to, to all the nonsense we do. Um, but like, I, 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 oh, hello. 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 Um, my little thing, I think, just kind of, anyway. Um, <laughs> work too much, terrible microphones. Um, like, yeah, so I, I actually, when I burn out, it's usually self inflicted. We have a no crunch policy at the studio, um, <laughs> unless the company's named after you. Um, that's, the, that's the rule, um, and uh, so it's strictly held. Um, but because of that, because I don't let anyone else do that work, um, and Jeff will back me up here. I've, I've seen Jeff, uh, who's in the audience somewhere, online at 8 o'clock and sent him messages <laughs> telling him off. Um, and he's like, no, I just leave my computer on, I have a life. I mean, you know, anyway. Um, 
So I, I, when I do burn out, it's usually because I've just been too into my work. Uh, and the solution is always just to walk away. Um, it's always just to step away. Like there's never, there's never been a point where I've gone tired or stressed and the solution was to keep working. Um, sometimes it felt that way. I mean, I literally, on volume, I ended up in a hospital because I was having heart palpitations. I was working so hard and I was downing energy drinks. Um, and I wasn't being paid sponsorship for it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I should be, I should. I now, I now get free tea. That's pretty cool. I get Yorkshire tea, so me free tea. Um, uh, but anyway, the, um, yeah, so I was, I was really pushing myself too hard. The solution is, yeah, walk away. Um, I walk, I, I literally walk a lot. I love going for just wandering um, and, you know, housework and friends and all, all the things boring people put on their um, dating profiles. Um, you know, films. I love films. Um, <laughs> Like, but just, yeah, setting away is always a solution. And, and, and that's fine, I think that's the other thing. Is we live in a society that prioritizes um, the idea of work as a, as a noble occupation. Like, if you're working really hard, then you're, uh, you're succeeding in life. Um, and I kind of, there, I think, I all think there's some interesting nuance of truth somewhere in that, but I think also we can kind of put so much energy into that idea that we feel really guilty if we're not working. And something I've worked really hard to teach myself is if it's not working, you're achieving more and you're more financially beneficial to your company and more creatively beneficial to the world um, if you just fuck off and play a video game for a bit. And that's, I did swear by asking that project. Um, um, but it's, it's, yeah, you, you just have to step away and, and, and do that. And, I, I, and, to know, and to know that that's the right thing. So we have the same policy with everyone who works for us. Um, if, if anyone on my team ever messages me saying, oh man, have you, Jeff, don't do this tomorrow. Um, if, if I, yeah, I'm really stressed all day, um, it's uh, just walk away, just go, just take a day. It's fine. Like, we're all going to still be here. Work, no one has ever finished a game one week early in history. Work always extends to the time available to. So therefore, by definition, our productivity must be a scalable variable. So therefore, it's okay to take the day off. That's always my view. Jeff, don't you dare send that message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Screw around the whole team. We've got time for one more question. Okay. Sorry, I'm rambling. No, don't, don't, Jeff, you can ask me later. Someone else. There's one, there's one under, okay. Yeah. Um, you spoke a little bit earlier about your theme and story, and how you kind of tease out mm-hmm. as the story is written. Um, does that ever have an effect on <coughs> mechanics? And is there any specific examples you can point to that some way you've covered? That's a really good question. Um, mechanics. Do you know, I think probably, it's, it's interesting that the, one of the things we're currently working on, there's a really good example of that in, um, because this is one of the first times where we've allowed ourselves a really long prototyping period that intersects with the writing. Normally what I'll do um, on our own projects is I actually often start by writing it, or writing a version of it, obviously that then gets changed and tweaked later down the road, uh, which means a lot of those kind of thematic choices are made kind of either very early or even before we actually start making the game. Um, that's kind of rare. Usually, writing happens much later in the process, but, but I always prefer to do it a little bit earlier. With the thing we're doing at the moment, we're, we're, we're in mid-prototype prototyping while I'm writing, and there's stuff that's getting changed in the prototype based on what I'm doing in the story. Um, I can't think of it, and I can't think of a historical example of doing that. Sorry, just to go back and forth between the two. 
Yeah. I, I, and that's the other thing is I think there's so many micro iterations. I'm sure you see this as well when you're working. It's like there's so much. Um, you forget all the decisions you make in a day. Um, and I'm sure we do do that. And I've just forgotten the five examples of when we have done it. Um, my question is quite short. Can we squeeze in the person in front who's his hand up for the whole time? Thank you. I, I hate to interrupt in the process of selection, but I've seen your hand go up every time. <laughs> uh, yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I miss the very start of this. So how do you get into the industry in what way? Uh, through narrative, like through narrative. Um, it's hard. It's really hard not to get pigeonholed or to or for people. The games industry still doesn't respect writers enough. Um, I'm lucky in that I'm a writer in codes, which means people respect me as a coder. And then once I've snuck in, here's a script. Um, <laughs> I paint myself as more creepy than I would like to. Um, the, the, the people who I know who've really gone in from a narrative side, I look at someone like, um, say, Mitch Shire. Uh, Mitch Shire was a, a game journalist, interestingly, who um, blacked his way, as far as I can tell, into writing Star Wars games now. Like, I, don't know, I don't know if he worked on the one that just came out, which I'm dying to play, and I'm frustrated with all of you for keeping me away from my PlayStation. Um, but I know he wrote the campaign for the last Battlefront. So, so, so games writing and journalism seems to be a really good way of getting in. But obviously, a very tricky job to have. Um, I, Lee Alexander, as well, has gone on to write. She seems to have written most games. Um, she's very, very much the joy maker of writing. Um, so that, that's a way. Design also often is a path, because most designers secretly believe they're filmmakers as well, um, or storytellers. So, so you can kind of sneak in with the designers and be the one who actually can do it. Um, that's a path I've seen work. Um, but generally, yeah, I, I think unfortunately uh, the best advice I can give is be really useful at something else and then just have opinions. You know, there are people, that, like in our, in our team, there are people on the team who couldn't care less about our stories and there are people on our team who privately send me three-page essays about how I've mistreated a character in our latest draft and script. Um, and and so, so generally, uh, and this is true I think of medium-sized companies as well as people who are tiny like us, if you show an interest once you're in the door, getting in the door is the harder thing. I think it's harder to get in as a writer. Um, and obviously it's not a path I had to take because I went in via game design. Um, yeah, I want to ask for the specific writers, I think. But yeah, I would, I would stealth my way in. That's what I did. I also didn't really realize I was a writer until I've been making games for a long time. Thomas was the first script I ever wrote, um, which was nice, that went well. Um, Danny Wallace basically saved it. But he's a golden joystick tonight, loading it up, so, you know, that's fine. I did a little David Brennan face there. <laughs> David Brennan, the Joker, I mean, all of the awesome cultural touchstones. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> I think we should just say uh, thanks very much to Mike. Thank you.